Dear congregation, I invite you again to turn with me in God's Word to Romans chapter 3. Romans 3. You may have had it before that someone comes to you and begins to share a story with you or something that they found very interesting. And as you are listening, the question that is going through your mind is, so what? So what about this story or about this fact that has any relevance to me and to my life? And this question is especially perhaps prominent in your mind if you're very busy, if you have lots to do. Perhaps it's also this reflection of our, our self-centeredness that we immediately go to that thought. But again, this is also what we see in our catechism this afternoon. So what? In the last weeks, we've been going through the Apostles' Creed. We've considered who God the Father is, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Who they are and, and what they do. And yet, what fundamental difference does that knowledge have for you in your life? What difference does it make for you tomorrow morning when you get up and you go to work that there is a God the Father in heaven, that there is His Son, Jesus Christ, who came and suffered and died, that there is the Holy Spirit? Does that make any difference to you tomorrow morning? This is also a question raised in question and answer 59 of Catechism. But what does it profit you now that you believe all this? Let's consider that this afternoon under the theme, the astounding result of believing the gospel. The astounding result of believing the gospel. And with the Lord's help, we want to consider that in three questions. I changed the first question from what we have in the bulletin uh, so it's slightly different now, but the, the first question is, uh, what is the benefit of believing? And secondly, what specifically do we receive? And then third, how can you receive all this? So we begin then by looking at what is the benefit of believing? And before considering the benefit of believing, it's helpful to remind ourselves why it's so important that we believe. In the first chapters of Paul's letter to the church in Rome, he has gone to great length to drive home this point, to show them and us our fallen condition. And just to read a few verses from the opening chapters that make this clear. First of all, Romans 1, verses 18 through 21. We read there, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Who, su who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because what may be known of God is manifest in them. For God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse, because they knew God. They did not glorify him as God. Sorry, but because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So there Paul makes it so clear. Everyone, if they looked at the evidence before them, they have to admit there is a God. 
But they take that knowledge and they twist it and they worship the creation instead. But God says, you are without excuse. And then in Romans 3, verses 10 and 11, Paul goes on to say there, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seek after God. This is the description of man by nature. Unrighteous, unwilling, uninterested in seeking after God. Then one more passage, Romans 3, verses 20 and 21. It says, Therefore by the deeds of the law no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed being witnessed by the law and the prophets. So we are sinners. We cannot save ourselves by anything that we do. And these statements apply just as much to us today as they did to the Jews and Gentiles in Paul's day. But now as Paul gets to the end of chapter 3, he gets to the wonderful good news of the gospel. He's saying, this is what you are by nature. But listen. There's hope for you. There's a way made, God made a way by which sinners can be saved. In our second point, we'll get to, get to question answer 60. We look at specifics. But now, first of all, here we want to see the big picture. In question 59, it asks us, what does it profit you now that you believe all this? And the answer is that I am righteous in Christ before God and an heir of eternal life. To be righteous means that you are in the rights. That you are acceptable and pleasing to God. And the only way that is possible is in Christ. Christ is the good shepherd who saves us from destruction. Christ is the, the narrow door by which you have to enter in to get to the way of life. Christ is the bread of life. Christ is the living water. Christ is the only way, the only hope that sinners like we have by which we can be saved if we are in Christ. That means if, if we believe the things that we confess in the Apostles' Creed, really, if we believe what is being summarized in God's Word, that means we are united to Christ. And because of that, we are righteous before God. Often we can be so concerned with what other people think. We want their praise, their approval. Yet as we stand, as we one day will come to stand before God on Judgment Day, we're not going to care what your co-workers thought, what your boss thought, what your neighbor thought. As you stand there before God on that day, only one thing will matter. What does God think of me? Am I right with God? So what does it profit you now that you believe all this? Well, to be right with God in Christ is of infinite value. There is nothing that in existence in this world that is more important than this. There's also a second benefit listed there in the answer to question 59. It says, first of all, that I'm righteous in Christ before God. And the second thing is, and an heir of eternal life. 
And this too is of infinite value. Some of you made different investments, maybe as you prepare for retirement. And it's so easy, isn't it, to, to spend time looking at those investments. What is my returns? What's the projected growth? How can I maximize my returns? Now it's good to prayerfully consider the future. And we do have a responsibility as we are able to, to provide for ourselves as we get older. But again, we can ask ourselves, so what? We can work very hard for many years. We can do the best investing possible. And you get to retirement age, and maybe you have several million dollars in your account, and you can say, that's wonderful. But then what? 10, 20 years later, you die. Whatever is left over goes to someone else. So it's so possible for us that we spend so much time, so much energy, focusing on, on providing for ourselves, on, on having a, a comfortable retirement. And yet we miss something that is so much more important. Jesus says it so well, doesn't he? As he warns us not to, to seek to, to inherit this whole world and yet to lose our souls. Are we spending way more time, way more energy, preparing and thinking about those few years instead of thinking about the eternity that stretches on and on and on beyond that? How foolish that would be. We know how many years we have to retirement, humanly speaking. But we have no idea how much time we have left until either we die or Christ returns. And yet when we see Christ, when we believe the gospel, we become heirs of eternal life. Now to be an heir means that you are going to inherit something, to receive a, a gift and the gift that we receive when we believe in Christ is not just to be right with God, but to live forever with Christ in heaven. Is there a greater gift than that? Is there a greater treasure to be found than to be forever with Christ in heaven, worshiping Him, rejoicing in Him? Well, so far we've seen something of the big picture, the benefit of believing that in Christ we are right with God. That in Christ we are heirs of eternal life. But what exactly do we receive when we believe in Christ? Let's see that in more detail in our second thought as we, as we answer the second question. What specifically do we receive? The question and answer 60 is packed full of, of biblical teaching. But I want to begin a little bit more in the middle of, of what we receive. If you have the handout, you can see at the end of the second line where the sentence begins with notwithstanding. And it says they're notwithstanding God without any merit of mine, but only of mere grace, grants and imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. So especially those three things, this, this perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. Now, in our meditations for our, our, our prayer meetings that we have twice a month, we've been going through Pastor John Piper's wonderful book entitled, 50 Reasons Why Jesus Came to Die. And providentially, the last two meditations have been on exactly on this. 
on being justified in what we receive. Justification has to do with how God views us, especially in that legal sense. So picture that you're in a courtroom, and there we have God as judge sitting there, and he's now looking at us as sinners. What what does he see? And what what changes when we believe in Jesus Christ? In the first point, we've seen what, what God sees by nature. Those who are unrighteous, those who are enemies, those who are dead in their sins, those who deserve God's wrath. But if you're in Christ, this changes, doesn't it? And there's two parts of that. First of all, when you believe in Jesus, our sins are taken away. And remember, sin is a barrier between you and God. Sin is something that, that keeps, keeps us from God, and God has to punish that sin. But this sin, if we believe in Christ, this sin is taken away, especially through the suffering and death of Christ, because he has taken that sin to himself, and he has suffered the wrath of God in the place of his people. This is what the Catechism refers to as the satisfaction of Christ. That Christ has made satisfaction. He has paid the price for those sins. And that by itself is astounding. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, He came into this world. He humbled Himself. He went to the cross. That horrible, terrible cross. He endured the shame and the physical pain. He endured the ridicule and the abuse of those who were there who were laughing at him, mocking him. Even more than that, he endured the wrath of God, the wrath of his own loving Father being poured out on him. We cannot understand, we cannot fathom the depths of Christ's sufferings. But it was through this that he made perfect satisfaction for the sins of his people. Remember what he said on the cross there? It is finished. It is done. He has done it all. That is good news for sinners. That Jesus has taken those sins. That he has made satisfaction in our place if we believe in him. So if you are united to Christ by faith, then all of your sins have been covered. He has dealt with all of them. In the passage we read read from Romans 3, verses 24 and 25, we see two descriptions of Christ's work of satisfaction. It makes reference there to redemption. That means he has It means to buy back, to to set someone free by paying a price. The second reference has to do with propitiation by his blood. That means that when a sinner truly repents and believes in Christ, then the blood of Christ covers their sins. And this, this covering by the blood of Christ, it takes away the anger that that God has, the anger that, that they deserve. Christ has has taken that anger and it's been satisfied in Him. This means that God is no longer angry with us. 
you're no longer under his wrath. But to come back to Pastor Piper's book and that picture of you standing in a courtroom, it's not enough to have our sins forgiven. Yes, now that you say that barrier has been removed. What does God require from us? What did God demand that, that we must do in order to be with Him in heaven? Not just that we don't sin. He requires perfect obedience. Perfect obedience that we would love God above all. We would always keep all of His commandments. And this requirement that we must meet, this is impossible for us. Verse 23 said in Romans 3, For all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. The only way that we can meet this second requirement is if we receive righteousness from Christ. If He has, if he has achieved this obedience in our place and if He now gives that obedience to us. This is listed in the Catechism as the, the perfect righteousness and the holiness of Christ. In Romans 3, we see this, this positive obedience. This is part of what it means to be justified. Also in verse 22, it, it speaks there, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. One pastor summarizes this by saying, there is, therefore, there is an exchange of sin and righteousness in view. The people's sins are placed on him so that he suffers for them, and his righteousness is counted to them so that they share in his vindication. And when your sins are forgiven, when the perfect obedience of Christ, when that's given to you, the Catechism uses the word granted and imputed, or we might say it's given and credited to your account. Then now when you're standing in court before God as your judge and He's looking at you, He doesn't see a sinner. He doesn't see your, your long record of sins, page after page of all those terrible things you have done. And now God sees something very remarkable. The Catechism says it's even so as if I never had had nor committed any sin. Because when God forgives your sins, your sins truly are forgiven. They've been dealt with. They're covered. They're, 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 they're done. Psalm 103 verse 12 puts it so well. It says, as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. The sins of our past can often come back to haunt us. We look back with regret. We look back with shame. We say, why did I ever do that? And perhaps why am I still struggling with this? But this is not so with God. David in Psalm 32 speaks of the joy of forgiveness. And in verse 1 he begins with, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. And he ends that psalm by saying, Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. 
The only reason David could say, rejoice, you righteous, not because the people now are perfect, but they have the righteousness of God given to them. Yet there's still more, not just as though I never had had nor committed any sin. The Catechism goes on to say, even so, going back there, even so as if I never had had nor committed any sin, yea, as if I had fully accomplished all that obedience which Christ has accomplished for me. As we consider the life of Christ, we marvel. Such wisdom, such compassion, such love, such perfection. If you are a believer, you long to be more like Christ. It grieves you how how little of this Christ-likeness you see in yourself. And yet in the courtroom of God, by faith, the obedience of Christ is given to me. Now my record, my guilty record has been removed. Now you can say, looking at my report card, it's straight A's. I have an A in obedience. I have an A in love. I have an A in compassion. I have an A in, in a righteous anger against sin. We have the obedience of Christ given to us. This is sometimes referred to as the active obedience of Christ. For Christ came not only to die the death that we deserve to die, He also came to live the life that we cannot live. And in Christ we have a perfect, complete, unshakable salvation. A beautiful picture of this can be seen in Zechariah 3. I've referred to this in the past as well, but there, Zechariah the prophet has this vision And he sees Joshua, the high priest, standing before God. And Joshua's there. And he's wearing these terribly dirty clothing. And Satan's there accusing him before God. And then God God answers these accusations. And he speaks to those before him. And he says, Take away the filthy garments from him. And to him, just to Joshua, he says, See, I have removed your iniquity from you. That's a picture of of forgiveness, of of sin and guilt being removed, sin being covered. But God does not leave him standing there without any clothes. But God goes on to say, and I will clothe you with rich robes. Can you imagine any any robes, any, any clothing more beautiful than the obedience of Christ? And we believe in Christ. Not only is our sin removed, We are, as it were, covered, we're clothed in this obedience of Christ. And that's what God sees when He looks at a sinner who has come to Christ for salvation. I've been going through this and I've been looking at the catechism. You may have noticed I skipped the first part of question and answer 60. This is one of the many places where the catechism is so pastoral, so realistic. The answer there begins by saying, well, the question is, how are you righteous before God? Only by a true faith in Jesus Christ, so that, though my conscience accuse me that I have grossly transgressed, and grossly there means obviously or unacceptably transgressed all the commandments of God and kept none of them and am still inclined to all evil. 
It is for people like this who are trusting in Christ that we have this righteousness. But this language that we see here in these opening lines of the catechism, this is not normally what you hear an unbeliever saying. Don't hear go to people in the world and say, I have broken all of God's commandments. I am such a sinner. Most people are making excuses, aren't they? Say, well, I'm not so bad. I've kept a few of these commandments, and I'll I'll try a little harder to, to do better. So often there's so many excuses. But here, this description, it's, it's so helpful in describing a real believer. If your eyes have been opened by God's Word and by God's Spirit, then you realize this. I have broken all of God's commandments. I haven't kept a single one. I have never lived a moment as I should have lived. And even now as a believer, sin seems so tempting. Something about sin that seems to draw me back. Yet at the same time, there's this hatred of sin. There's that that struggle that you could find at times in your heart. This is why salvation in Jesus Christ is such good news. We don't deserve this. We haven't contributed anything to this. And if we're honest, we, we continue to sin against God who is so good to us, so patient with us. But in Christ, sinners like us, struggling like believers like we may be, we have a full and complete salvation. On the second point so far, we've seen the forgiveness of sins and being credited with the righteousness of Christ that these are tremendous blessings. But how can you, how can I receive them? It's wonderful to hear there's a great cure to your sickness. But if you don't personally go to the doctor and, and get this medicine and take this medicine, knowing there's a cure available out there, it's not going to do you any good. Let's think about that in our third thoughts. How can you receive all this? How can you have your sins forgiven? How can you be covered in the righteousness of Christ? Well, question answer, question 61 asks us, why do you say that you are righteous by faith only? In other words, we might say, is there really no other way we can be saved? Is there no other way I can be made right with God and and receive all these benefits? And things that might come to our minds are, what about good works? What What if I dedicate my life to God? What if I, like Martin Luther, go to a monastery... And all I do is is study God's Word and I spend time in prayer and and when I sin, I'm going to take a whip and whip my back and punish myself. We know from Martin Luther's life that if anyone should have been saved in the Roman Catholic system, it should have been him. He had no comfort there. You could say he was doing all the right things. And yet, he was a sinner. Romans 3, verse 28 says, Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. We can come to church twice a Sunday. We can faithfully support the the work of the church with our gifts. 
We can read our Bibles. We can pray every morning. These are important things and good things. But these things will not bring you one step closer to God. These things will not save you. So, so now as the Catechism says, because of the worthiness of my faith. Believers are not saved because their faith is so great. We don't impress God as we, as we trust in the promises of the gospel. If we're honest, we have to say our faith is so weak. There's such a mixture in our faith of, yes, on one hand we believe, and yet we struggle to believe. It's also not as the larger catechism says, because of the fruits of conversion. If you are saved, you will produce and you ha- if you have faith, it, this faith will show itself in a life that is being transformed. Jesus says, if, if a, a good tree must produce good fruits, and yet your love for God, your desire to obey God, your zeal in serving God, this does not make you any more justified, any more righteous. If we think that we are the fruits of conversion contribute to, to our standing with God. You're mixed up, we're confused. Well, how then is it received? How can we receive these wonderful things we looked at in a second point? It is by faith, by looking away from ourselves, by looking to Christ by trusting in Him alone for the forgiveness of our sins. So we see repeatedly in Romans 3, in our text passage here, verse 22, through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe. Verse 25, it's through faith. Verse 26, that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. By what law of works? No, by the law of faith. Verse 28, we conclude a man is justified by faith. Verse 30, there is one God who will justify the circumcision or the Jews by faith. And the uncircumcised, the the Gentiles, the rest of the world, through faith. I think the, the point there is clear, isn't it? We Become right with God through faith. What then is faith? What does that look like? Remember a few weeks ago, or a few months ago now, we looked at Lord's Day 7. I used the acronym CATS, CAT with a K. And it stands for, first the K is for knowledge. This is what the CAT has been driving home as well, hasn't it? In order to be saved by faith in Christ, you must know what you believe. You cannot believe in what you do not know. And then we have the A. A is for assent or agreement. True faith, a part of true faith is that we need, by God's grace, to come to a point where we acknowledge, I cannot save myself. I cannot contribute to my salvation I agree that my only hope is in Jesus Christ. And the last part of this of cats is T, trust. And trust is simply another word for faith. 
You need to put your trust in Christ alone. To go to Him, pleading for forgiveness. To go to Him, acknowledging to Him, You are my only hope. The only way I can be saved is if You forgive me, if You accept me because of what Christ has done. The Catechism ends by saying, Question and answer 61. I cannot receive and apply the same to myself any other way than by faith only. As the Westminster Larger Catechism says in question and answer 73, faith justifies a sinner in the sight of God as it is an instrument by which he that's a sinner receives and applies Christ and his righteousness. That brings us to, a, in conclusion, a very important question. And that question is, do you believe the gospel? Are you trusting in Christ? Is he your hope? Is he the only way by which you have been made, is the, have you come to him and have you been made right through Christ? We began or earlier in the service, we confessed the Apostles' Creed together. This summary of our faith are, this, are these 12 statements, things that you personally believe. Not just information that you have in your head, but you believe in God the Father. Are you trusting in Jesus Christ? Are you looking to and depending on the work of the Holy Spirit? If you truly believe all this, then you have a real treasure. You have something of infinite value, something that you can never lose. Eternity in heaven is not long enough for you to, to get to the bottom of God's love. Throughout all of eternity, you'll be growing in your amazement and your appreciation of who this great God is and what Christ has done for you. Throughout eternity, you'll be delighting and worshiping and praising our glorious God. Psalter 112, verse 4, sums it up so well, and I'll end with this. We'll sing this also in, in a few minutes. and It says there, Although I poor and needy be, the Lord in love takes thought for me. Thou art my help in time of need. My Savior, Lord, art thou. Then, O oh my God, I pray, I plead, stay not, but save me now. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father who is in heaven, or we come to you again in this afternoon. But one day we know we have to stand before you. And you will judge us. But we thank you for what Jesus Christ has done. And we thank you that you make this, that you call sinners like us to believe this, to receive this, to rejoice in this. And we ask this afternoon that 
you would work in all of our hearts. That those who already believe may be encouraged and strengthened. Lord, that you'd be building them up. That they would look forward and, and with greater joy and anticipation to that great day when Christ returns. We pray especially for those who are still without Christ, still in their sins, still under the wrath of God. Lord, as they hear that in and through Christ, their sins can be forgiven. They can become heirs of eternal life. That they would seek you. They would not rest until they too may know and rejoice in, in the reality that Christ is their Savior. We also pray that for our loved ones, those maybe who worship in other places or who have rejected you. Lord, we ask that Many of them may have, will have heard your word and they even remember your word. That you would press home this reality on their hearts and on their minds. What must I do to be saved? Or please save them. Or help us they may continue to, to pray earnestly for them. To pray expectantly for you to work. We pray that, that you would work in a great and a powerful way. Lord, as we begin another week, we also ask that you'd help us to live in a way that is consistent with these wonderful things that we've considered today. That our lives would be changed more and more by our great God, by our knowledge of you, and our relationship with you. Lord, help us in our work. Help us to do it faithfully. Be with our children if they're still on summer holidays, that you would keep them safe and that they would enjoy this time of rest. Lord, whatever that we have set before us in, in the next week, we pray that you'd help us to do it to your honor and to your glory. We pray all these things for Christ's sake alone.